All right, we are back. As we are recording this program, the sky outside the window has a decidedly reddish tint to it because the third largest wildfire, the third largest wildfire in California history is currently chewing up the landscape in the north of the state. Of course, I think last year at that time, uh, something like six of the seven largest fires in California history were all condensed into one summer. This seems to be the new normal, and it's not a good one. Not coincidentally, uh, the power generating from Oroville Dam, which I think is the tallest non-concrete dam in the country, has, has been shut down because the water level is too low to generate power. Does anybody remember a study that came out in 1972? I, I believe they actually published a book with the same title, which was The Limits to Growth. It was a group in, at MIT that published a series of alarming predictions saying that if industrial society continued to grow unchecked, it would exhaust Earth's resources and lead to civilizational collapse by the middle of the 21st century. It sparked a lot of controversy back then. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I had a book uh, that was a summary of, of, of limits to growth. Don't have it anymore. I wish I did. I'd like to pull it out and take a look at it. New research published in the Yale Journal of Industrial Ecology says we are currently on track to live out its warnings. The original Limits to Growth paper used a model called World 3 to predict how factors like global population, birth rates, mortality, industrial outputs, food production, health and educational services, non-renewable natural resources, and pollution would interact to shape the future. Keep in mind, back in 1972, nobody was thinking about global warming. Even without global warming, they used their model to show different potential scenarios for the future, some leading to collapse or a steep decline in social, economic, and environmental conditions. Looking back on this study, it's pretty clear that there were two major scenarios that would, that would emerge. Uh, the original study posited a business-as-usual future and a comprehensive technology future. Of course, back in 1972, they thought that technology would make things better. <laughs> and yes, sometimes they do. But uh, Gaia Harrington, is the author of this new study, spoke to The Guardian and said, both scenarios indicated that continuing business as usual, that is, pursuing continuous growth, was not possible. Here's the sad, wistful part that I like. Neither of these scenarios, says the article, are locked in place. The data indicates that policymakers have about 10 years to meaningfully act to change course. Harrington argues in favor of, of taking that action. I think that's about right. If we do a lot of things right in the next 10 years, we may be able to avert disaster. That's a hell of a big if. And let's take a look now at some of the big ifs. in the. And let, now let's take at some of the biggest ifs in the big if. For, well, I don't know. 19 years on this program, we've been talking about uh, polling and uh, electoral subversion, which frankly has been going on for the past couple of decades. In spite of the fact that Donald Trump and his allies have been falsely claiming that the 2020 election was stolen, we think it's rather more likely that millions of votes were pushed in his direction through a number of means. Because for reasons that no one seems to really be able to explain, the polling data in America seems to always get it wrong, unlike in other countries. Germany, for example, will um, announce the results of elections based on exit polling. 
Of course, if we try to do that here in America, it would, it would appear that, well, the exit polls just don't seem to work here, unlike in other places. It's pretty depressed to see a piece in the Washington Post a few days ago by Dan Baltz noting that the 2020 presidential polls suffered their worst performance in decades, according to a report. To quote from the piece, public opinion polls in the 2020 presidential election suffered from errors of unusual magnitude, the highest in 40 years for surveys estimating the national popular vote, and at least 20 years for state-level polls, according to a study conducted by the American Association for Public Opinion Research, the AAPOR. And yes, someone needs to take a look at who is financing the AAPOR. Regardless, their task force examined 2,800 polls, including 529 national presidential race polls and 1,572 state-level presidential polls. They found that the surveys overstated the margin between President Biden and former President Donald Trump by 3.9 points in the national popular vote and 4.3 percentage points in state polls. So yes, you have two possibilities here, um, that either the polls are really bad or the vote counting ain't what it should be. The piece notes that the task force members were not able to reach definitive conclusions on exactly what caused the problems in the most recent election polls and, and therefore how to correct their methodology. Here's the part that, well, we talked about this on this program in the wake of the 2004 election. Notes this piece that the polls overstated Biden's support in more white, more rural, and less densely populated states is suggestive, but not conclusive, that the polling error resulted from too few Trump supporters responding to the polls. Okay, think about this. The redder the area, the more rural, the more white, the less densely populated. In other words, the more strongly these regions were Trump-supporting, that's where you saw the largest errors in favor of Biden. Think about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, back in 2004, they hypothesized that there was the the shy Bush voter who didn't want to uh, admit that he voted for Bush, but it turned out that the largest errors in the Bush versus Kerry rate were in the strongest pro-Bush areas where you would be least likely to find people who were shy about expressing support for George Bush. I think the same logic applies here. I think that something smells rotten and... um, and I guess we better bring Greg Palace back. What do you say, Mr. McMillan? I say yes. Okay. Someone else we need to bring back on this program soon is Christina Borgeson. Her wonderful book, Into the Buzzsaw, is something we just cannot recommend highly enough. She also was the, I believe, co-producer of a documentary concerning TWA Flight 800. Reached out to Christina a couple days ago, and she said, yes, she'd be happy to talk to us. I hope she will do so in the not-too-distant future. I did reach out to her because of the obituary item referring to James Kallstrom, described by the Washington Post as the FBI agent who led the investigation of TWA Flight 800. He died at age 78 last week. I think I need to excerpt from his obituaries. Back in 1997, then-FBI Director Louis Free praised Kallstrom because apparently he was a, uh, a guy that would plant bugs on people. He was credited with planting a bug in the couch used by John Gotti, the mafia boss, before he was convicted on racketeering and murder charges. Louis Free said he took the Bureau sort of light years ahead of where we were at the time and put us in a wonderful position today, said the Post. He was referring to Mr. Kallstrom's efforts to modernize the Bureau's technological capabilities. Anyway, Kallstrom was working in the New York office of the FBI, 
He became chief of that office in 1995. And two years later, when Flight 800 was downed by a missile, he was called upon to investigate the crash. The Post described it as one of the most expansive inquiries in airline history. It involved numerous other agencies, including the NTSB and what is now the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. I'm going to read straight from the obituary. There seemed at the onset four possible explanations for the crash. A bomb, a missile, sabotage, or mechanical malfunction. Now, of course, the obituary seems to omit the fact that the FBI took control of the investigation ahead of the National Transportation Safety Board because there was such overwhelming evidence that a missile was seen rising up from sea level to strike the aircraft. It was assumed that a terrorist could possibly have downed TWA 800 and that this needed to be looked at very carefully. The obituary notes that the FBI investigation into the flight crash involved more than 1,000 agents and interviews with 7,000 people. Divers painstakingly pulled records from the water. And if you remember, dear listener, the contemporary coverage back then of what they were finding... At Calverton on Long Island, they were reassembling the pieces of the plane, and when they were doing so at first, they showed where the missile entered the aircraft. There was a large hole punched in the side, and a corresponding hole punched out the other side, which all of a sudden mysteriously disappeared from descriptions when they decided that, well, no, it wasn't a missile. And to again quote from this shameful obituary in the Washington Post, as the investigation proceeded and agents combed through thousands of remnants of the plane, No indication emerged of a bomb or friendly fire missile, a theory for which Kallstrom said there was not one scintilla of evidence. In November of 1997, the FBI formally closed its investigation. The decision, Kallstrom said, was based solely on the overwhelming absence of evidence indicating a crime and the lack of any leads that could bear on the issue. In fact, he remarked, we ran out of things to do. And again, quote from this scandalously horrible piece of news obituary. Other inquiries continued, however, and in 2000, the NTSB concluded that overheated fuel and air caused an explosion in the plane's center fuel tank. The board could not determine with certainty the genesis of the explosion, but cited a short circuit as a probable cause. Now, friends, if you know anybody in aviation, please ask them what would happen if particular aircraft let's just say the Boeing 747, was found to have a design flaw that would blow it up on occasion and ask them what the odds are that nobody would take any actions whatsoever to correct the defects in the design. And the answer you're going to get back is that is preposterous. That would never happen. And the fact of the matter is it did not happen in the case of Boeing and TWA and Flight 800 because the investigators knew that that is not why the plane blew up. Anyway, we'll have plenty more to say about that when uh, Christina returns to the program, hopefully in the next few weeks. For me, this is the gold standard of cover-ups. If the United States Navy can accidentally shoot down a commercial jetliner and kill 230 people, which is what happened, and you can successfully cover the thing up, well, my God, what can't you cover up? And uh, if your answer to that is alien spacecraft visiting the Earth and flying saucers, we have to say, flunk! But before we leave the subject of Kallstrom, we have to round up the picture of exactly who he was a little more fully. In recent years, James Kallstrom appeared frequently on media outlets, including Fox News, 
where he voiced criticisms of the FBI under the leadership of James Comey, the director who was fired by President Donald Trump in 2017 amid an investigation into possible collusion between Trump's campaign and the Russian government during the 2016 election. Kallstrom characterized Trump as a patriot, and he denounced Hillary Clinton, his 2016 Democratic opponent, and her husband, former President Bill Clinton, as a crime family, basically. Referring to the investigation led by special counsel Robert Mueller, a widely respected former FBI director himself, into allegations of Russian interference in the 2016 election, Kallstrom asserted on Fox News in 2018 that, quote, it's crystal clear that there's a cabal, a far-reaching cabal, way beyond the Bureau, into the intelligence community, into the National Security Council, into all these peripheral people putting this thing together, this fraud against Trump. I can't resist adding the quote from Mark Twain, that I haven't killed a man, but I have read some obituaries with satisfaction. Jeez, I'm getting a little bit wound up here. I think it may be time to, to break out the Radio Parallax Emergency beer can. Okay. Actually, we're just joking. This is just a Coca-Cola. We have a fairly firm policy against drinking and doing radio. We do? Well, now we do. We need to talk about Jane Mayer's article in The New Yorker. If you missed her interview with Terry Gross this past week, I strongly suggest, dear listener, that you check it out. And we strongly suggest that you actually read the article because, well, as, as much as one likes to think you can cover the topic fully on radio, it's, it's always nicer to have lots of pages in print. Before we talk up Jane Meyer, let's just do a little bit of review of where we stand on the January 6th putsch, which took place in Washington, D.C. We've been a little skeptical that, that good is going to come out of the congressional investigation of that event. We say... You know, crimes were committed, impanel a grand jury, bring down indictments, try these people, and throw them in the slammer, which, which is going on. This past week, the first person sentenced for the, a felony involved in the insurrection, a Paul Hodgkins, was given eight months in prison. He's a crane operator from Tampa. He carried the, a Trump campaign flag in the Senate chamber, and though he did not actively engage in violence... He was not by any stretch of the imagination a protester, said the judge. Prosecutors had sought an 18-month term for Hodgkins, who pled guilty, but apologized to the court, saying he now recognizes that Joe Biden was legitimately elected. Now, of course, you know, he would say that, wouldn't he? As Wilson Misner once said, you know, it's pretty hard to believe a guy when you know you'd lie if you're in his place. But let's note, maybe he was sincere. And even if he wasn't, that's not an admission we've gotten out of Donald J. Trump yet now, is it? I thought he did a couple of weeks ago. Well, maybe he did, but I'm sure the next day he was back on his usual broken record. Now, it is truly amazing that for the past several months, which was completely predictable, the right is trying to reshape our view of what happened on January 6th. Last month, Phil Bump in the Washington Post noted that congressional Republicans were engaged in a multi-pronged effort to gaslight the public about a violent uprising one in which rioters ransacked offices and chanted, Hang Mike Pence, events that injured over 140 law enforcement officers who were stomped and beaten, tased and speared with poles, leading to traumatic brain injuries, crushed spinal discs, burns, eye damage, and a heart attack. Maybe remind you, the mob's express intent in smashing their way into the Capitol 
after walking down Pennsylvania Avenue from a rally in front of the White House directed by you-know-who, was to prevent Congress from certifying the electoral votes that made Joe Biden president so Donald Trump could be reinstated via a coup. Yet Andrew Clyde, Republican Georgia, likened the insurrection to a normal tourist visit, while Representative Paul Gosar of Arizona called the insurrectionists peaceful patriots. About that time, 21 House Republicans voted against honoring Capitol Police defenders because they objected to the event being termed an insurrection. Even more disturbing, noted Aaron Blake also in the Post, that there's a slow-building conservative effort to turn Ashley Babbitt into a martyr. Babbitt was the 35-year-old Air Force veteran who was fatally shot by an unidentified officer while trying to climb through a broken window into the Capitol. Tucker Carlson called her shooting a homicide. Representative Paul Gosar said she was executed by an officer, quote, lying in wait, unquote. Even NewRepublic.com said that the whitewashing will only get worse, and it's a warning sign on where Trump authoritarian populism may be headed. May be headed? In I Alone Can Fix It, Carol Leaning and Phil Rucker report that General Mark Miley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was deeply worried that Donald Trump was going to invoke the Insurrection Act and likened his lies about a stolen election to the Reichstag fire, which is what Adolf Hitler used to seize control in Germany. Contingency plans to stop Trump from calling out the military to prevent a peaceful transfer of power. Miley told aides they may try to stage a coup, but they're not going to effing succeed. Here's something that hasn't got a lot of play. After the election loss, Miley was alarmed that Trump and several Iran hawks in his administration were raising the prospect of launching a military strike on Iran before Trump left office. That was to punish Tehran for restarting its uranium enrichment program. Well, in theory, that's what it was for. If you do this, you're going to have an effing war, Miley told the president. Nonetheless, Trump continued to raise the possibility of bombing Iran up until January 3rd, when Miley and others finally persuaded him it was too late in his term. Anyway, regarding the testimony of four Capitol Police officers before the um, House Select Committee on the Capitol Insurrection, the San Francisco Chronicle noted that the officers' testimony laid bare the lies spouted by so many Republicans, especially the claim that the insurrection was mostly peaceful. Officer Michael Fanon, who was tasered and beaten unconscious by the rioters, said he was horrified that the lawmakers he went to hell to protect are now trying to sanitize January 6th and tell him that hell actually wasn't that bad. The Atlantic noted that both Kevin McCarthy and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell claimed they were too busy to watch the first hearing. Liz Cheney, and who imagined we'd be championing Liz Cheney on this program, has claimed they will look into every phone call, every conversation, every meeting connected to the attack. Said the nation, the officers cut through all the noise. They unabashedly called the rioters terrorists and pointed the finger at Trump. One of the officers likened the former president to a person who hires a hitman to do his dirty work. There seems to be a question of whether Trump will be called to testify. I hope he is. All right, let's talk about Jane Mayer, who is a fantastic writer and did a fantastic job with her piece titled The Big Money Behind the Big Lie. This does spread out guilt a little bit. It's not just Donald Trump we have to worry about. To quote from the piece, it was tempting to dismiss the show unfolding inside the Dream City Church in Phoenix, Arizona, as an unintended comedy. One night in June, a few hundred people gathered for the premiere of The Deep Rig, a film financed by the multi-billionaire founder of Overstock.com, Patrick Byrne, who is a vocal supporter of former President Donald Trump. 
Style is a documentary. The movie asserts that the 2020 presidential election was stolen by supporters of Joe Biden, including by Antifa members who chatted about their sinister plot on a conference call. The evening's program featured live appearances by Byrne and a local QAnon conspiracist, Baby Q, who claimed to be receiving messages from his future self. They were joined by the film's director, who had previously made an expose contending that the real perpetrators of 9-11 were space aliens. But notes Jane Mayer, for all its absurdities, the event had a dark surprise. The deep rig repeatedly quoted Doug Logan, the CEO of Cyber Ninjas, a Florida-based company that consults with clients on software security. In a voiceover, Logan warns, if we don't fix our election integrity now, we may no longer have a democracy. He also suggests, without evidence, that members of the deep state, such as CIA agents, have intentionally spread disinformation about the election. Oh, and the president of the Arizona State Senate, Karen Fan, oh, she put Logan's company in charge of the forensic audit, the ongoing review of the state's 2020 presidential vote. It's an unprecedented undertaking with potentially explosive consequences for American democracy. So we have a private group that's being privately funded running a review of a state's presidential vote. Cyber Ninjas acknowledged having received $5.7 million in private donations, most of it from, you have to look at this very carefully, nonprofit groups led by Trump allies who live outside Arizona, including Patrick Byrne. Now, in America, to be a nonprofit charity, you have to specify that you will not engage in political activity. So a big question for all of these groups, which are engaging in electioneering and political activity, is how is it you manage to retain your nonprofit status? This is a question that a lot of people need to start asking. Of course, that's coming from me, not Jane Mayer. Mayer quotes Chad Campbell a Democrat who was the minority leader in the Arizona House of Representatives until 2014 when he left to become a consultant in Phoenix. He's been shocked by Arizona's anti-democratic turn. For several years, he said he sat next to Karen Fan when she was a member of the House, and in his view, she's gone from being a traditional Republican lawmaker to being a member of Trump's cult of personality. He said, I don't know if she believes it or not, or which would be worse said Mayor, Arizona is hardly the only place where attacks in the electoral process are underway. A well-funded national movement has been exploiting Trump's claims of fraud in order to promote alterations to the way that ballots are cast and counted in 49 states, 18 of which have passed new voting laws in the past six months. Republican-dominated legislatures have also stripped secretaries of state and other independent election officials of their power. The chair of Arizona's Republican Party, Kelly Ward has referred to the state's audit as a domino and has expressed hope that it will inspire similar challenges elsewhere. Skipping ahead in the piece, Mayer says that although the Arizona audit may appear to be the product of local extremists, it has been fed by sophisticated, well-funded national organizations whose board of directors include some of the country's wealthiest and highest-profile conservatives. Dark money organizations sustained by undisclosed donors have relentlessly promoted the myth that American elections are rife with fraud. And according to leaked records of their internal deliberations, they have drafted, supported, and in some cases taken credit for state laws that make it harder to vote. One of the movement's leaders is the Heritage Foundation, a prominent conservative think tank in Washington. 
has been working with the American Legislative Legal Council, ALEC, a corporate-funded nonprofit that generates model laws for state legislators on ways to impose new voting restrictions. Among those deep in the fight is Leonard Leo, chairman of the Federalist Society, the legal organization known for its decades-long campaign to fill the courts with conservative judges. Anyway, there are numerous other groups. I don't want to read them all off because it'll, get, it'll be a little bit confusing. But suffice it to say that these disparate nonprofits have one thing in common. They've all received funding from the Lynn and Harry Bradley Foundation. Based in Milwaukee, it's a private tax-exempt organization that has become an extraordinary force in persuading mainstream Republicans to support radical challenges to election rules. Now, we've talked at great length over the years on this program about how voter suppression has been a key to Republican successes across the country, which is why we intend to bring Greg Pallas back on this program. But one thing we did not pay sufficient attention to in this election and what's likely to happen in future elections is the possibility of simply subverting the vote of a state. What the Trump people tried to do in this last election cycle without much success, although you could argue that what's going on in Arizona right now means it's still in play, is to basically set aside the electoral votes of a given state and have the state legislators of that state appoint the electors who will choose the president. Now, the little-known unsettling reality of American politics and the Electoral College is that the Constitution set up the Electoral College so that state legislators would pick the electors that would go to Washington to select the president. It is only in the past century or so that it was sort of agreed by all these states that, well, what we will do is we'll see who wins the vote in our state, and then all the electors from our state will then vote for that person. It doesn't have to be that way. Back in 2002, this concept of the independent legislature doctrine sort of arose in the Bush v. Gore decision. It was alluded to. This idea that, you know, the people that really hold the power of an American election are the state legislators. Fast forward to this year, Shauna Bolick, a Republican state representative from Phoenix, introduced a bill in Arizona that would call for a radical reading of Article 2 of the Constitution, which would be along the lines of the independent legislature doctrine. It would enable a majority of the Arizona legislature to override the popular vote if it found fault with the outcome. <laughs> yeah, we found, didn't, didn't vote for the guy we wanted, and we find a fault with that one, and dictate the state's electoral college votes itself anytime up till Inauguration Day. Shauna Bullock has described her bill as just a good Democratic check and balance. But her measure was considered so extreme that fortunately it died in committee despite Republican majorities in both houses of the legislature. Yet, says Jane Mayer, simply putting forth the idea as legislation has helped lend legitimacy to the audacious theme that the Trump campaign desperately pursued in the final days before Biden's inauguration to rely on Republican-led state legislatures to overturn electoral college votes. Oh, by the way, down in Arizona, Shauna Bollock has since announced her candidacy for Secretary of State in Arizona. If she wins, she will oversee the future elections that take place in Arizona. Anyway, this is a complicated article. I highly recommend that you take it in yourself, dear listener. 
She closes the piece by describing what happened to Bill Gates, not not the Bill Gates, but a, a Bill Gates in Arizona who's been a long-time Republican official. Gates told Mayor, it's not about Arizona. We're literally pawns in this. This is a national effort to delegitimize the election system. Gates predicted that if Arizona could question this and show that Trump won, the game will move on to Colorado, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Virginia, all of which have sent Republican delegations to observe Arizona's audit. Noting that both QAnon followers and his state's own Republican Party chair have referred to dominoes in connection with the audit, Gates said, we know what that game is and how it works. It isn't just Donald Trump. It is arch-conservatives. I think it's fair to say that to a large extent we still are a, an imperfect democracy in the United States, but a lot of people find us as being just way too democratic for their tastes. People like those who operate the Heritage Foundation, people like the Bradley Foundation, a lot of very sketchy people are being richly endowed with campaign funds, and this does not bode well. Mayor notes in the piece that in October of 2020, a group called Rally Forge, which had a history of creating phony left-wing front groups, the front group was called America Progress Now, to promote Green Party candidates online in 2018, apparently to hurt Democrats in several races. Well, wouldn't you know it, Rally Forge got banned from Facebook, and its president, Jake Hoffman, got permanently suspended by Twitter. Undeterred, he ran as a pro-Trump Republican for the Arizona House and won. Remarkably, the chamber's Republican leadership then appointed him to be the vice chair of the Committee on Government and Elections. And having, having and since getting elected, Hoffman has challenged the legitimacy of Biden's victory, called for election audits, and coordination with the Heritage Foundation used his position to promote numerous bills, making it more difficult to vote. You know, just as an aside, it wouldn't hurt for you to, uh, to check out the Heritage Foundation. Just see what Wikipedia has to say about them. I was not aware of the fact that here in 2021, Mike Pence published an op-ed on a Heritage Foundation website which made false claims of fraud in the 2020 election. The foundation has promoted the false claims of voter fraud through Hans van Spankowski, who features very prominently in Jane Mayer's article. In case you're keeping score, the Heritage Foundation rejects the scientific consensus on climate change. The foundation is one of the many climate change denial organizations that have been funded by ExxonMobil. And yes, even Wikipedia notes that in spite of all its political uh, activity, Heritage is a tax-exempt 501c3 organization, which is not required to disclose its donors. And by the way, donations to the foundation are tax-deductible. And it gets money from other foundations, including the John M. Olin Foundation, the Castle Rock Foundation, the Richard and Helen DeVos Foundation, and the Bradley Foundation. And I'm just about plumb wore out at this point. Can we close with something positive? Yeah, we better, huh? All right, let's close with this. Politics has always been a bit of a dirty business, dating back to the 1790s, I think, in America, when we formed political parties. The Federalists coalesced around John Adams, the second president, and what were then known as the Republicans, later the Democratic Republicans, later the Democrats, coalesced around Thomas Jefferson. They were friends in their younger days and friends in old age, but when the two of them were vying for the presidency, they didn't get along so well. Here's what Jefferson said about Adams. He characterized him as distrustful, obstinate, excessively vain, 
and takes no counsel from anyone. To which he added that he displayed disgusting egotism, distemperate jealousy, ungovernable indiscretion, and vanity without bounds. Of course, John Adams returned the favor, accusing Jefferson of possessing a mind soured yet seeking for popularity and eaten to a honeycomb with ambition, yet weak, confused, uninformed, and ignorant. And no, Mr. Whelan, Jefferson did not respond with, I know you are, but what am I? But you know, Adams may have been a little bit hard on, on people. Apparently, he also went after the amiable and benevolent Benjamin Franklin, about whom he said, His whole life has been one continued insult to good manners and to decency. I can have no dependence upon his word. I wish with all my soul he was out of public service. Anyway, I guess that lightens things a little. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, as as all of them have been. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. We hope to bring you on our next program something considerably lighter than today's fare, which would be, we hope, an interview with the legendary Burt Ward. You know him as Robin of the Batman TV series, one of the funniest shows I think that was on television back in the 60s. We'll see you soon.